How are we doing, folks? My guest today is going to be Breezy Johnson. Breezy is an Olympian and national champion speed skier on the U.S. ski team. In this episode, we discuss Breezy's attitude and dedication to the sport she loves. We also discuss her climb back to competition after injury and her drive to be the best. I hope you enjoy Breezy's journey of failures and successes so far. And please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Enjoy. Perfect. We're rolling. Thank you very much for taking the time, Breezy. I really appreciate it. I mean, you're getting ready to uh, hit the slopes, get back on the road. Tomorrow's the uh, the big day. Are you excited? I am very excited. Yes. Uh, we're driving to Copper tomorrow um, to do final prep period before the season. So, yeah, I always like Copper and I haven't been there for a couple of years. So I'm excited to be back there and get some speed runs in there. Yeah, it should be good. I mean, it's good. How, how different has this like off season and all the prep and everything been so different with COVID and everything else? I mean, I know what, they don't have any of the North American stops, right? No Lake Louise or like Beaver Creek for uh, the world cups right there. They're keeping everything in Europe, right? Um, yeah. So okay. for the world cup tour, everything's going to be in Europe except for they are still planning on doing the test event in Beijing um after the world championships but kind of i think they're kind of at a point where they're like we'll see where we're at in whatever it is uh i think that's late february so that's kind of like tbd but um yeah so everything's been in europe and then we had a lot of our training in the u.s canceled early season so we didn't get as much speed training and then we finally got over to europe at the beginning of September and that was kind of when our speed training started so is that like for you going into a season is it I mean obviously it's completely different than normal you're usually traveling and on the road a lot like way more so has that been nice like mentally to kind of get a little bit time to step back spend some more time with family obviously with everything that's going on has that kind of been a little bit like refreshing compared to the usual grind that you guys are all on it's been nice to have some time with family and stuff, which like, and I've spent more time at home, but then it's also been like, you know, I've been injured for two years and haven't had a lot of training for the last couple of years. So I was kind of looking forward to like a normal summer, which I haven't had before the Olympics right. even. And so I didn't really get that this year, but, um, you know, it's, it's okay. I guess normal is relative for me at this point after, everything yeah no i mean it's crazy i mean that's how we first uh first met you uh my wife was injured at the same time that you were right kind of going through mm -hmm. and then became uh rehab buddies and yeah i mean it's been it's quite the the crazy process to kind of see you grow through that injury because i mean you kind of your trajectory you started having um some really good results and very promising start uh, you know you get your first olympics under the belt seventh there have some great training and then obviously you you have a setback but i mean when you're in this sport, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when, especially when you're flying down the hill, doing downhill, 80 miles an hour, 90 miles an hour, like things are going to go wrong at some point in time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's definitely not a question of if it's a question of when I think after my first injury, I was like, okay, like this happens to everybody. Like I've paid my dues. Like you have to like do this at some point. And then there was a little bit after the second injury where I was like, okay, when does this end? Like, when can I be normal again? And like, is the sport ever going to like, let me do it again? Um, yeah. But 
but yeah, it's definitely when you're, when you're running it 80 miles an hour, um, you really have zero room for error. You know, there's a lot less crashes in downhill and super G than there are in like the tech events. Mm -hmm. But when you go down, it's, it's not good. Right. Yeah. But I mean, that's where you put so much training in, in that off season though. And I know you had one of those quotes when I, when I was looking at that, I thought, um, you were talking about, uh, especially go after going through the injury and setting goals in times of heartbreak and also in times of success and kind of using that, uh, those daily goals to be able to propel you forward when the times are tough and the times are dark, you know? Uh, it's always one of the things I think that's like most overlooked is everyone talks about success and how great things are when everything's going good. It's a lot easier. Confidence is high. Everything's rolling and that momentum's kind of going uh, with you, but when that injury kind of strikes and then it's a monumental setback, I mean, it's nine to 10, I mean, it's a big period of time, especially ACL or something like that. There's no real quick way. And obviously technology, everything's gotten better, but still it's, you're stuck going in, doing rehab, doing quad sets, doing all heel slides, the same, I mean, monotonous things every day. And the progress is so slow, right? I mean, I remember for me, there's times you're hitting your head against the wall and you know, your, your buddies will reach out for you and you hear from them on, when they're on the tour, like, Hey, checking in on you every once in a while. And you're like, really kind of wish, you know, it's kind of sucks to hear that you guys are all having a great time traveling around and I'm stuck here. Yeah. I'm great. Yeah. Icing. Yeah. I mean, it's also like, I mean, you probably have this in like moguls, but you go from like, what's is like kind of like the most like complex thing like going down an icy ski slope ski slope off of and over jumps and like through all this like crazy terrain at like 80 miles an hour or like for you you're like doing these like crazy tricks to like the most simple thing like straighten and bend your leg mm -hmm. get your muscle to fire like and to to like watch yourself be unable to do that like most basic thing when you're so used to being able to doing like those crazy complex things is so hard mm -hmm. um mentally and emotionally no, but totally. yeah, you just like have to like start small and be like you know these quad sets are going to be slightly better than yesterday's quad sets and go from there and that's um something that i kind of that helped ground me is like okay, it's just a little bit better than yesterday. And you don't get like quite so overwhelmed by kind of the magnitude of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And for you, is it, are you more um, of a daily kind of goal setter or is it do you, like, how do you kind of break that down when you're trying to make your progress, whether it's in the gym or on the slopes, do you look at it of like a monthly breakdown of like, okay, here's where I want my strength numbers to be. Here's where I want my time to be. And then you break that down into a week or is it daily? Like, okay, these are the three things for, for my day that I want to kind of try and attack and take care of. I'm more in general of like a month to month kind of person, but I am like very much like always trying to exceed what I did yesterday. Like that's sort of my, like, I guess you could call it like perfectionism or whatever, but like, it's just like, I'm always like part of the reason why I got into the sport is because I'm always like interested in like pushing my limits and like seeing how far I can go personally. And so I just like, I'm like, okay, what can I do today that I couldn't do yesterday? And like get, I do get like, you know, I have my program and I get like, obviously,
Patel is totally like this too, your wife, but she, you know, we're both like super methodical, like check every box, dot every I, and there's like no like corner cutting. And it's like very kind of fastidious way of like going through rehab and just like general too. I think it helps when you have all that like marked out too in the future when you come to periods of struggle or something like that, like when you have everything journaled out, you have everything kind of broken down, you can look back to those periods of not only when things are not going well, but when things are going well, be like, okay, what was I doing during these days of training when, you know, I was hitting my fastest times down the hill or, you know, what, what, okay, what, what can I go back to and kind of lean on when maybe the confidence isn't so high? I mean, for you, you, you finally broke through, you came back and your first, do what, your second event back, you were, right back in the, in the hunt, you got two, uh, two fifths too. I mean, you really came out, crushed it, uh, for, for, and I mean, were your expectations that, or were your expectations? I'm just happy to be back and get to be doing this again, doing the sport that I love. I mean, what, what kind of, uh, expectations did you have? Cause it's always one of those hard balances, right? I mean, you learn so much and I feel like for most people, it helps, to have the injury to give you that real love and appreciation. Cause I know for me personally, it's like, boom, when it's taken away for a season and you're able to get that opportunity to get back to it, you're like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Just to be at the top of the course, just to be around, you know, the competitors and get those butterflies going. And what, what was it for you? Yeah. I mean, I think like I always, I've always said that like, I don't, I don't think that I like necessarily like took the sport for granted beforehand, but you just can't totally understand it in the same way. I don't think most people like take their sport for granted, but it, when you, when it does get taken away from you, you really just do understand it on a deeper level, like what it means to you in a way you could just can't Mm -hmm. um, beforehand. And so I came back and I did like kind of mentally have to like think through some of that stuff. Like, because I was pushing my timeline a lot and I was like okay like I'm pushing this timeline like what if it doesn't go well like am I like do I want to race to race or do I want to race to win and like if I'm racing to win is this like the best um you know trajectory and all that kind of stuff and I I tried to kind of I did try to wrap my head around like, okay, I'm like coming back and I'm like willing to like, I love this so much that I'm willing to kind of suck at it. And, <laughs> but that's <laughs> like, and, and like, you know, knowing you that is such like a battle with your personality. Cause as you talked yeah. about earlier, like checking the box and yeah. you know, you have part of that aggro, like, Hey, I'm going to get this done and I'm here and I'm here to win. I mean, I remember yeah. we did like a pumpkin carving party and you had like three pumpkins carved in a matter of like 10 minutes. You're like, boom, done. Look at this. Check this out. It's good to go. Boom. It's like, well, we're just, pump, you know, just carving pumpkins. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that wasn't like uh, just just to clarify about the pumpkin carving. That wasn't against other people. I'm just like, I just get like very into things when I do them. And yeah, and then, that's your personality though. So, so to be going in, thanks. yeah. So yeah, no, it was, it was tough because I was like, okay, sometimes when people come back from injuries too soon, they suck. Mm-hmm. And like, am I willing to suck? And I was like, I think I'm almost, I think I'm willing to suck. 
Mm -hmm. but I did want to do well. And I was like, I'm going to do everything possible to not suck Mm -hmm. and to like do this right. But like being away from the sport, I realized that like my love of the sport wasn't based entirely in me being good at it. It was also based in just doing it. And so that was where I was like, okay, like I'm willing to like risk it and have this be not good um, because I, because I want it that much. Um, And also like, especially after my second injury, I, I say like, and this is like a, pro and a con but it's sort of just like this reality that I had to face is that like I wanted it so bad that I was like greedy I was like I don't know if I'm gonna get injured again like tomorrow next week next month next year but like I so I like want to race and I want to do it now and I have to do it now because I no longer like had a lot of trust in my ability to like stay uninjured. And so that was like, that was like tough, but I was like, that was also like part of it, I think too, on why, as I was like, my body feels good right now. And I can't say what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day, but Mm -hmm. all I can say is that it feels, it feels good right now. And so all that I can do and what I have to do is ski as fast as I possibly can right now right? and like worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Yeah. Kind of focus on it day at a time. So that's kind of why you, when you're saying you're greedy, I mean, is that like pushing up that, that kind of timeline and, and wanting to get back to it? Because I mean, the, it, the, the normal timeline of coming back was like what, tw- 12 months, about a year. And how long were you when you were, you know, from that ACL to, to back on snow back, like in the gate competing? Well, yeah, I got injured in the middle of June and I started racing again at the beginning of January. Okay. So it was, I think, slightly under seven months. Yeah. Um, I started skiing again, like, I want to say like five and a half months after injury, which was a very like tight timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I had had basically no like I think I trained like maybe five times before I got back in a race course Mm -hmm. and so it was like those things where I was just like I was progressing through things and every step that I took it was like I felt good in every step I it was like you know I got back on skis and it was like okay this just like feels like I'm skiing again it doesn't feel Mm -hmm. like I don't know how to do this. This feels like I never left. And then I got back in gates and I was like, again, this like feels like I never left Mm -hmm. and, you know, get back on the speed skis, same thing. So I was like, I don't know what a world cup hill is going to be like because I haven't been on it in a long time, Mm -hmm. but like, I'm going to take that risk because, because I'm, because I'm greedy because I don't know, like, because basically like, halfway through my like slow and methodical recovery where I was like, you know, doing lots. I was planning on having, you know, tons of extra training before I got into a race gate. Mm -hmm. I got injured halfway through that training. And so I was like, maybe I'll go through that again. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So yeah, I had like, you know, it was tough because my injury was in June, which is kind of uncommon 
like a lot of people get injured in kind of March or like kind of that preseason area. And mm-hmm. obviously if you get injured preseason, you miss a season, then you have like a full prep period to come back. But June was like, it was late, um, later than normal for like a lot of people get injured also in March and then they kind of miss the whole prep season, but they probably don't miss like, they might miss a full season or they might not like they kind of have that choice at that point um whereas mine like I was like really kind of pushing timetables just because of when I was injured so um that was kind of like like my choice and I can't necessarily like recommend that for other people like I knew a lot of people who compared me to like other rehabbing people and they're like oh like you made like so and so look like silly in their recovery and you're like no, like absolutely not. Like you cannot compare people in their recovery. Like I just did what I had to do. Sure. And yeah, like- I mean, that's so tough psychologically too, because it does come down to that level of trust and being able to trust in that knee that when, not when times are good and you're going well, but when you get into that compromised position that you are inevitably going to end up in that all of that effort put in, in the off season is going to come back and, you're going to be right where you need to be and boom, those hamstrings are going to engage or that quad and your knees nice and stable and you're, you're back at it. It is one of those things though. And I think that that's, that's super interesting when the slow methodical way and boom, you have a little bit of a setback there and you're like, okay, I need to get back in the gate. I need to get back in that, and that feeling and that love and that, and that joy. I want to be back on the downhill course and let's push it a little bit. I mean, that also fits your, your uh, like aggressive personality of, all right, I want to get this done. I want to attack it, which I think you kind of need when you're in downhill, when you're going 80 miles an hour, like you can't be timid because that's how you're going to get hurt, right? Like you have to be aggressive. You have to, I mean, take the, the narrowest line, right? I mean, if that's the fastest person down the hill, you got to take the line that's right in between death and glory, right? It's this fine line. And that's like, some of the favorite moments of my career, the couple of times where I was able to be on the rails and like, okay, I am right on the period of disaster or this could go really well. And that is so much fun. And that is addicting, right? I mean, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. I want more of that. And so when that's taken away for a couple of years and then you have a setback, it's like, damn it, screw this. Like, let's, let's just get back and get mm-hmm. me back in the gate. I'm good to go. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is interesting. Like one of the things that I definitely like found, like I know sometimes, and sometimes doctors can do this too, where they like tell athletes like, Oh, this is like the worst knee injury I've ever seen. Or like, I haven't seen a knee injury this bad in three years. And like, (laughs) they're feeling like they like, you know, their problems are like really large. Like I was always trying to keep them small Mm -hmm. because I was like, when I come back, like, I want to have like full confidence Mm -hmm. and like, and yes, like if you ski timidly, like in downhill, like you lean in, you're risking Mm -hmm. that, like that crash, that edge catch, that whatever, like you have to ski, like, like nothing can hurt you. Like nothing can harm you. And that's actually like the safest way to ski. Um, Reckless abandon. (laughs) but that is like on this fine line because yes like when I got injured the first time it was because I was like pushing too hard I was like pushing beyond and Mm -hmm. so there's kind of like a a mix there for sure but 
I like very much like I remember like my surgeon like if he was like he was like this is no problem this knee is like all good and then like a couple months later he was like you know feeling pretty good about himself and feeling pretty good about my recovery and he was like he's like you realize you like almost dislocated your knee like you basically dislocated your knee and I was like Jeff I did not dislocate my knee (laughs) I basically dislocate my knee I like you know did this and this and that was it like there's no like we don't get to like expand this yeah we have to shrink this like yeah you have to like make it small and be like this is fine i'm good my knee's good Mm -hmm. um while like also being able to be like i need to be safe and things like that so it's a it's it's a very fine line for sure no and i think that's really a a great approach because i mean 90 percent of those rehabs really are so psychological i mean i had so many friends that would get uh, beat up or hurt and then they go through the doctor and then the rehab and then they would never come back it would be the same or even close just because they could never get that trust there was always that kind of barrier there of like well you know is this thing gonna happen again or is it they, they couldn't get back to being on that fine line that edge just because psychologically I mean it really is uh, a difficult thing to overcome and even as the technology's gotten better and better with it I mean there's a lot of sacrifice and uh that, that goes into it. But I, you know, so the psychological part of me, that's the fun thing about that rehab, right? If there is a fun thing, you really get to work on your mind. I mean, the physical stuff kind of sucks doing those, you know, I know for me, I was reading as much as I could and like, okay, what do I need to do to get better? And like, I really started to take my diet seriously after really started. I mean, I didn't drink anything for about a year after I was done. I was like, okay, no alcohol, no, like, let's see how much of a difference I can make in one year and then start to ease things back in and, and kind of really take this chance because it was taken away from me. And I was at the time in my life was like, all right, maybe I should be done. Maybe I should go to school. Maybe I should do this. Or, you know, are you going to throw all the eggs back in that basket and, and kind of put in the time? You know, I remember sitting at squatters down in Salt Lake with my dad and he's like, so, you know, might be time to go back to school. What do you think? I'm like, yeah, I think I'm going, I think I'm going back in. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm going to go for it. Yeah. <laughs> but it is yeah. those dark questions you have to ask, right? Yeah, no, you have that. Like, there's always that little voice of like, like there's these people who get injured who just like, for whatever reason, like it's not even totally clear to like anybody, but they come back a hundred percent physically and for whatever reason, they just never re-reach that level of performance that they had. And that's, that was like the scariest thing for me because I was pretty sure that like, like physiologically, like things were fixed and they'd mm-hmm. done a good job. Like, but I wasn't like in part because you don't totally know why those people don't make it back because if they knew what their problem was, they'd right. probably be able to figure it out. Mm-hmm. but um so I was like am I like I just like can't be that person and I so you do have that although I also like working on the m- mental side of things was was good and valuable coming back but I don't know that I would say that I enjoyed it personally I found it to be very frustrating I yeah. guess why was but. why was it frustrating for you Um, well, it was just, it's just not fun to like be dealing with like 
anxieties that you kind of can't totally answer to and um you know like having so many questions you just have so many questions and and there's like this tough thing where like you know I had always like loved my body and particularly when I tore my ACL like particularly right afterwards there was a lot of like oh well you could do a hamstring graft but you're a woman and so those often retear you could do a telegraph, but often those you end up with tendinopathy because you're a woman. And I was like, wow, like my body kind of sucks. Like, <laughs> like, so that was kind of tough too, to like have that kind of mental, like feeling of like, you know, something that's like so attached to you, something that you like spent so long and like lived in and has done so much for you and just kind of like you sort of feel like you're fighting it mentally because you mentally feel like you're ready to race Mm -hmm. but physically your body won't let you and you're like it's hard to not like almost take it personally against your body um but then (laughs) but then like but then that also like once you once you do make it back then you're like so grateful for your body and like all that it has done and right. like it's like amazing ability to heal yeah. and that. so there's kind yeah, of two no, sides 100% for sure I mean I think another thing that goes into it is the team around you I mean that's when you really know who your friends are and you really know who you can uh, talk to when times are not going well I mean those coaches or sports psychs that are there for support and there to kind of build you back up and put all the pieces back together. So you are good to go when you get back in the gate. I mean, there's not too many. And and that's, I mean, cause so many people are off doing their own things, living their own life and you're stuck going through that rehab process and everything else. So, I mean, that, that team, I think really kind of propels you uh, forward. I mean, I know for me, my PT Mark Moeller was absolutely fantastic. And when I went in and, and met with him, he was like, listen, um, the, the number one thing you need to know is they did a great job. You have a great graft. And it was easy for me to start to compartmentalize it when I was like, okay, so if I feel this pain and I hurt it, like if I'm, and it's hurting me when we're doing these heel slides, whatever else, like I'm not re-hurting my knee, right? This is all like good pain. He's like, yeah, you cannot re-injure your knee with all the stuff that we're doing. I was like, okay, then pain doesn't matter to me going through the, I mean, I got full range of motion back super quick because I was like, okay, I can break that down super easy. It's just, it's just pain. I'm not re-hurting anything. And boom, you get that range of motion back. And I think that helps with the confidence, right? You have the team, you have the support and the COE. I mean, you got, you had a great staff there to be able to kind of help and and build the right program for you because each person's unique. You know, you're out, you're like, I want to be back. All right. You tried the slow methodical. Okay. Let's tear this up and let's go back to the drawing board. I'm going to be competing this year. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. We had a joke when I got injured the second time that my strength coach I was like are you gonna are you gonna quit Bob now that you have to deal with me for six months straight again buckle up (laughs) which was like which was like funny until like I said that and I and then and then somebody else at the CAE said that and I was like no you don't get to say that only I get to make that joke (laughs) but but yeah it is like it is that was like something I was like super grateful for was like the people who worked with me were 
incredible. Like, you know, like my surgeon, like, you know, surgeons, they work with like hundreds of people a day and I could like text him and be like, Hey, like this is going on. And he would like get back to me right away. Like he called me, he would call me like, you know, once a week early on and then like switch to like almost like every other week for like the whole time that I was injured. And like, if we, you know, had like a question about something, like we could just like get a hold of him. And like those people are, um, you know, really great. And it's, it is very impressive to see what they can do. And it was, it was really cool. Cause like, I, I'm always like, I'm like a knowledge fiend. Like, Mm -hmm. I think we have that in common. And like, so yeah, I was like reading this stuff and then like you get like information from your strength trainer and it's like, Oh, like we're trying this like super new, like cutting edge thing that like might give you like a, you know, 1% like help. Like we did a lot of like, we were doing like eccentric, what we called like overload training early on in my second rehab like they had basically like just read these articles about people doing essentially like really hard eccentric work on their good leg and mm-hmm. that actually like would make their injured leg stronger or like keep it from atrophying as much and like even though that was like a small thing and like you know maybe wouldn't like wouldn't give that much of an edge like we were willing to do that and like people who are willing to like always be looking for that stuff who aren't like this is good enough or like Mm -hmm. you're you know like doing rehab once a week is probably fine you know who are like we will do as much as is necessary to help you and Mm -hmm. like we are always like hunting and looking for like that slight edge for you yeah, which is awesome. I mean, that's really what you want to, like I said, to fit your personality. I mean, you're going to be in there every day and you'll take as much as they're going to give you like, okay, let's do this eccentric. So, I mean, for eccentric, that's what, two or three seconds on the way down and then explosive on the way up. I mean, would that kind of be like squat training and, and kind of uh, some things like that with the, would it be, would they have you do with like one leg with the one good leg or would it be both legs as well as kind of just working everything in there to get it back? So we were doing, so this was like before I was even like weight bearing or anything on Mm -hmm. the injured leg So we were doing like, yes, you do like, like we did one in a Smith machine. Do you know what a Smith machine is? It's like one of the uh, machines with the wires. So it kind of like holds the weight. So Mm -hmm. we would like put weight on and there were like two people on either side of the machine. And I would be Mm -hmm. doing like a single leg squat down with all the weight. And then they literally like the people would pick up part of the weight weight. and I would go up and then they'd put it back on. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, that required like two people anytime I had to do that to like take time out of their day to like pick up weight for me Mm -hmm. and like not to mention like set the whole thing up and everything. And that was like something that we did early on. And like, you know, we were doing like BFR training, which, you know, through Avital, like, is like it's the type of training that it just like i i always say like because you you'll like cry if you have an excess of any emotion like whether it's like you know you'll cry because you're happy or sad or angry or whatever Mm. like i say like you would end up crying in it and i think it was because like effort isn't an emotion Mm. and if you like put that much effort 
like you just would start crying at the end and you didn't know why like it was super painful but it wasn't just the pain Mm -hmm. like you weren't like in like that much pain but it was just so hard and you were like doing so much that you were just like crying and I remember just like crying and like doing like leg presses like single leg leg presses and you're just like it is kind of incredible and you walk and you don't like notice it so much when you do it yourself but you like that was like one of the amazing things about rehabbing with Avital was just like watching somebody else go through it was Mm -hmm. like very inspiring to like see like how deep like somebody else was digging you were like oh like yeah like this sucks and we're gonna like have it suck together (laughs) right yeah no it's nice to have that that bond and have someone to to go through it with for sure and for those out there that don't know bfr would be blood flow restriction so essentially if it's your injured leg if it's your right leg or whatever they would wrap something around and essentially cut off the the blood flow to your leg um and that is supposed to give several different benefits with creating uh, muscle growth and kind of getting that thing nice and strong again, right? So they cut off the blood flow until there's there's essentially nothing left except the tears. <laughs> yeah, your leg turns entirely purple. Just imagine like putting a tourniquet on your leg and then telling yourself to do like single leg squats or like lunges or something with it. It doesn't really make any sense seemingly, but it has a lot of proven effects. There's a great article in outside magazine, look up like outside magazine, BFR outside and maybe Delphi is like the company that then makes them, but outside magazine has a great article. Okay. Cool. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, and, and the same thing with the Smith machine. If people are wondering that is like a, essentially it's a squat. It'd be like a squat rack except it's got, uh, assisted. Like if you don't have someone there to be able to spot for you, it kind of, it, it, it's not the same effect as you're squatting, but it's fairly close. Like you have a barbell and you know, you can squat a bunch of weight by yourself and you don't have to worry if you don't have someone there to spot you or anything else It kind of just assists you, um, on the way up and on the way down uh, a little bit. So for those out there that are not total meatheads and spending all day. <laughs> in the gym. Yeah. Yeah. These global so for you now i mean you're off and uh off and running and val Desaire is where you head to tomorrow right or well you're going to copper but the first event is in val Desaire, right some friend uh so our first downhill is in val Desaire, but okay. we have a super i think a couple weekends before that in summer in switzerland okay. which is the first um weekend of racing i want to say it's the fifth and sixth but it might be the fourth and fifth of december so those are our first competitions back um and yeah i know like things are a little rough in europe but i think they're hoping to get those off yeah i'm sure that they'll you know i know the the protocols kind of coming up and all the different testing and stuff you've had to go through the summer every time to go and call you guys got to follow all the procedures all the masks all that stuff which is good and you know hopefully uh, it'll be interesting all the all the air travel there but i mean uh kind of bouncing all around but it's like once you get to europe you guys will just be taking buses and, and stuff like that right yeah we have like our own kind of fleet of cars um and it's a lot of gear yeah. it's a lot of gear <laughs> oh my gear people are like like oh like where are your skis in like this car that you're driving around you're like no the skis the skis have their own car (laughs) there's so many skis they need their own vehicle 
Um, How many so, skis are you rolling with? Like, what will you bring to an event? Um, I want to say I've got like maybe 25 pairs of skis right now. 25 different pairs. And then they're all within those different pairs. All of them will have a different wax. All of them will have different uh, tunes on the edges. So some will be sharper, some will be more dull. And then the waxes are all, because uh, they do like, I mean, we don't have nearly that in, in mobile skiing. It's not really, you know, you have like one wax you'll put on, you have your one tune um, or not. Some people don't even do that. They just let it ride factory tune. It's good for like two years. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we, so generally like day to day, we try to have the same like, like sharpness, unless we're testing things out. So we test a lot through the summer. So we've actually like, you know, of those like 25 skis, like it took like, you know, over the years, like we get skis in and then we kind of like, you like send the not as good skis back to the factory and those get given to other people. So if you've ever like received like a pair of like, you know, some important person skis, those were, those were reject skis. Reject. Oh, <laughs> you're getting the losers. Those are the losers. They couldn't get it done. They couldn't get it we done. Keep, we keep our best, the best skis. And so we're always kind of like working through those and like finding new models, finding new skis. Um, but generally, like once we get into like race season, um, then we kind of like we pick a model, we pick a like setup and we kind of mostly run with that unless like you know depends on the person a little bit i tend to run like with pretty much the same setup but occasionally people like have like a different setup for like really icy conditions versus snot and things like that but those people are like nerds nerds <laughs> but i mean how much i mean it is crazy to think of all that different preparation I mean, you spend the whole summer kind of doing that testing and i think if you're not in the in the ski world or in that reality I man i don't think people are really aware of that you know they turn on and mm -hmm. you watch the event and it's like, okay, yeah, but, but I mean, there's so much that goes into the tuning team. I mean, you have a team that, you know, tunes your skis, looks after all your gear and make sure everything's perfect from the detail of what the temperature is going to be from when you push out of the start gate to what the snow's like at the bottom. Cause when you're doing it downhill, I mean, you're going through a lot of different elevations and things like that. So, I mean, it could be slushy at the bottom and then it is completely rock solid as you're pushing out of the gate. Right. Yeah, for sure. That can happen. That is like oftentimes kind of the worst conditions is when it changes through, through the slope. But yeah, so we have like, like we have a whole, we have a, you know, between every like one to two athletes has their own ski serviceman, ski technician. So that there's a whole person in charge of, they're essentially kind of like a caddy. If you watch golf or whatever, right. sure like picking out like the best like club or in this case pair of skis they're also prepping those skis so a ski technician will you know say we're getting on the hill at 7 a.m they wake up at you know 5 30 or 6 you know get breakfast get ready drive to the hill get on the hill with you ski with you are usually lapping your clothes with you because it's cold in those spandex suits. And so we lapped our clothes right. <laughs> and then, and also like there in case like something's wrong, something breaks, skis aren't sharp enough. Skis are too sharp, whatever. And then they get done. You get to the end of the day, you bring all the skis off the hill. you usually have 
on a training, you know, on a race day, you usually have like two to three pairs of skis on the hill. You have your warm up skis, you have your race skis. But when you're training, you'll often have four or five pairs of skis on the hill. Then they're working with two people. So that's eight pairs of skis on the hill, maybe up to 10 pairs of skis, depending if you like also have like a GS pair for warm up. So then they get down, they eat lunch quickly. Then they go, they tune skis for, you know, eight hours. They get done at 10 o'clock at night. They go to bed, they wake up at 530 and they do it all over again. So like... You know, and then like when you win Olympic gold, like nobody hears from them. Right. <laughs> like yeah, the, the they unspoken don't heroes. On, the unspoken to go on Letterman, sure. even though like <laughs> you look at like like Lindsey Vaughn's technician. Um, you know, he won Olympic gold with her, but he also won Olympic gold with like um, Patrick Ortlieb, who was like a ski racer back in the eighties, late eighties, early nineties, and like. So he, in some ways, has like more gold medals right. than Lindsey Vaughn. He has all yeah. Lindsey Vaughn medals, and then he has like his from like other athletes. But nobody's ever heard of him. Yeah, Where, like everybody's heard of Lindsey Vaughn. So that's like those guys work their butts off, and I think that that side of the sport is super cool. Like if you look it up and you hear things about like technicians, and you know they're always looking for like what wax is running because you don't just like put wax on. You have to like it's kind of a mixture between like intense science chemistry class and like a little bit of black magic. Like those guys are out there, they're taking snow temperatures all the time. They're, you know, looking at, you know, what the snow crystals are like, how hard the surface is and things like that. And then trying to match a wax that will be fastest for those conditions. And if you took, say you took like Lindsey Vaughn, at you know any world cup or like olympic games and you put her on like the worst skis on the hill like yeah first of all she probably would have crashed because they're probably like inexpertly tuned and so she wouldn't have like really known how to ski on them but even if she had ski on them maybe 20th place like that's how important skis are you they can make a big difference even if you're the best skier in the world if you have trash skis on, yeah, then it makes a difference. Like, go home. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the difference between? Because you said you had your warm up and then you have your racing. Like, what's the difference between those two uh, pairs of skis? Like, you have your warm up pair and then you have your competition. Like, do you, so you switch out. You go into the other pair. Is it just the wax is going to wear off on the warm up skis? So you need to have the other ones that have the fresh wax on, or how does that? Like, what's the difference there? Well, yes, you have the, like the wax that you race on is like good for like one run, maybe two. Okay. Um, but then also like a lot of times I, because I warm up not on downhill skis for downhill and oftentimes not even on super G skis. So a lot of racers warm up, um, on either super G or GS skis. Almost nobody warms up on downhill skis. Why is um, that? Cause they're kind of just like too big and like, like usually like I want to cut, like personally, I, a lot of times ski on GS skis, which are very different from downhill skis because I want to kind of get used to like turning. I want to be ready to turn. Like my ability to like get in a tuck and like go straight is like, I'm feel pretty confident in that, but I want to be able to like be ready for the turns. So I, a lot of times warm up on GS skis. Um, Super G skis are often, 
really similar to downhill skis, but they're a little bit shorter, a little bit less like stiff. kind of, uh, yeah, probably a little less stiff, but like also just like easier to kind of move around. And then you can make a little bit smaller turns on them. A lot of times our warm up slopes are kind of shorter, narrower, not as good. And it's not like, like you have your like training runs when you're actually running on the downhill slope you'll always use downhill skis but a lot of times the warm-up slope isn't anything like a downhill court so you don't like there isn't like a second place to be like oh well here i'm gonna ski downhill but not in the court (laughs) gotcha because downhill requires kind of specific um setups but occasionally like you know, I ran on downhill skis before my first training run when I was coming back from injury because I literally hadn't skied on them. Mm-hmm. I hadn't skied on downhill skis. So I was like, I should probably just do this to like have done it before I like kick out of a start gate on them yeah. and like get feel for those long skis. Um, and then occasionally you'll do them. Oca- very occasionally you'll get to run on the downhill track. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of times people pull out downhill skis, unless uh, oftentimes, sometimes when they do that, downhill skis aren't allowed. They have to run, you have to run on super G or GS skis. Okay. So, right. yeah. That, that makes sense. Now, when I was looking at the the different schedule for some of the downhill and super G, and I don't know if it's just for this year with COVID going on, but I saw that there's like, uh, it said like four times downhill at Val d'Isere. Like, so does that mean it's four separate World Cup events at Val d'Isere? And is that because of COVID or is that normally you go to a stop, they do two downhills at it? Or how, how does that kind of work with the schedule? So on the website, they signify like four times downhill. So that's if it's four, that means there's two runs and then two races. Okay. So um, no venue has more than like two scheduled of basically any event right now Mm -hmm. occasionally there's like because of covid this year there's a couple of like kind of double stops like the men are going to valdezair twice although i'm pretty sure they're actually planning on skiing on a different slope the second time they go there um but you'll run um usually world cups are scheduled for maximum of two so like Samaritz, we're going to run two Super Gs. So we'll run two Super G World Cups. Then we go to Val d'Isere where we have, so we'll have two training runs. Then we'll have downhill race, downhill race, Super G race. Mm-hmm. So the whole weekend will take like five days or whatever. And then you go on to the next place. So a lot of places just have one downhill and one Super G. That's standard. But occasionally they have um, two downhill scheduled um, which usually are makeups. Usually they only originally schedule one downhill, but then obviously because of COVID, they've scheduled two downhill some places. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. Oh uh, yeah. I was just, I was looking at that. So I was kind of curious how that different breakdown kind of works for it. So that makes sense. Now, when it comes to the, the travel, I mean, how do you prepare yourself for that? Because you already have so much. And then obviously this is going to be a, a different year, but I'm just saying normal times, like, you essentially live in Europe for, for six months and how do you prep yourself for kind of a goal set or what kind of habits do you have for 
essentially living out of suitcase for a long period of time. <laughs> um, yeah, well, for one, we have a lot of bags to pack. So I am traveling to Copper with like three duffel bags, essentially, which are like big, heavy duffel bags. Um, and so that's like for one, like you like when I'm on the road, like I want my own yoga mat, like, you know, you yeah, got to have stuff, your- sure. simple stuff. Um, mentally, I've kind of always loved travel. I'm kind of different than some people. I'm I kind of love being on the road and kind of packing up and like leaving a place and that kind of like clean slate that you have when that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but you definitely like you know order your christmas presents online and have them delivered and things like that but i think i think mentally you do have to like roll a lot with the punches and then realize like what you what you kind of need like mm-hmm. and if you like have things that you that you need then like you got to make sure that you like bring those or like kind of mentally prepare for that and then um and then you got to be willing to to let go of the rest so like Mm -hmm. you know I travel with my own pillow because occasionally you go somewhere and you really just hate the pillow and that was kind of like my first like full year on the world cup tour like we went to world champs and I had been totally fine with the pillows everywhere else and then we went to world champs and it was just like two weeks of like this thing sucks. <laughs> so <I laughs> and that's like, not the event you want to have that at. Yeah. No, for sure. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, this is to happen like at the Olympics, like or mm. like world champs or whatever. So like I'm just gonna like deal with this. And so you kind of you you bring those things and then um yeah, like luckily I don't have like a lot of dietary restrictions because that can be really tough for people traveling on the road who are like super gluten-free or things like that, that can be very tough. Yeah. That's gotta be, that's gotta be definitely brutal going somewhere and you don't really have the options. I mean, I know for different times when we would go to places, this you're, you're eating what you're eating and it's, or you cannot eat <laughs> either this or nothing. And it is yeah. one of those things. Though. I mean, that's a great point about when you're on the road and being able to kind of control what you can control in that situation. Like it's a great learning experience. Boom. Now I know, I can bring a pillow with me every single stop and that's in my control. And out of the 30 bags or whatever, when you take to Europe, like you're probably, it's not like, it's the same thing as like, it's a matter of when you're going to lose a bag. So the important stuff that you can actually kind of control and keep like, all right, that's on my backpack. That's what I need. Like every stop step of the way, you know, I mean, it really kind of makes sense because there are so many things that are just out of your control for us. It was not nearly as bad. You have like, one duffel bag usually one duffel bag and then your ski bag so yeah and then backpack so you had you know three bags you're kind of carrying around with and not like 20 yeah (laughs) but it's like like one thing that like i learned when i like got to the world cup was like uh like you always like like you know this from moguls but you always like bring your boots on the plane with you Mm -hmm. but we also bring a second pair of boots not necessarily on the plane with you but just like in your in your baggage because if you break a pair of boots or 
you have like you know something goes wrong with one pair you like lose them like somebody steals them who knows like then you have another pair that's exactly the same that's broken and you break them in in the summer and then you can literally just like slide those on your feet and go and like those things are are super important um for us and like you know we have so much gear for alpine Mm -hmm. that you do end up with a lot of bags um not as many as we used to i heard that the girls used to travel with like everybody had eight bags that's great which is which is insane um then i know i know some people who on the same thread of like me needing like the extra pillow like they get annoyed by having a ton of bags so they don't travel with that much stuff yeah so like that could be like maybe your thing is like having to pack up four bags every time and Mm -hmm. so you only have one um so you just got to figure out like what you what you need and then and then also like when you have that much stuff like for me like whenever i pack up like everything goes in the same place and then that way i always know if something's missing because like you know you never want to like walk out and then be like oh i left my gloves you know Mm -hmm. ever and i'm not going to be able to get another pair for six months (laughs) right yeah no it's definitely i'm sure i'm i knowing you i'm sure you gotta have a packing list every stop you gotta have everything broken down and what you need to bring right and i think that that's important because that's how you're able to to keep track of a lot of those things as you talk about the the things that you can control and we're go- when you're going into a ski season and you kind of start to reach you know obviously the level that you're at and you're taking it seriously like you should just have a packing list i mean I, you know my mom used to make one for me when i was like 10 and i would go and you know be like all right yeah sunscreen i wouldn't think of that and you know oh, i gotta put sunscreen on damn it yeah so, you know, but it really is one of those simple things. And, and once you kind of get into that mode of going to new places, I mean, I really think it, it, it makes a big difference when you have the comfort level of the things that really matter to you. And whether it's something small or something big, and you can only control so many things, you know, and it's interesting when you're going on the hill, I think, I think it helps mentally to take solace in the things that you can control. Because when you get out on the hill, there are so many things that you can't. You can't control what the weather's going to be. You can't control what the course is going to be like. You can't control, you know, uh, in our sport, what the judges are going to fit. Like, you know, you just go out and you can only do you really, right? So, and and to get into that right frame of mind, I mean, for you, what what helps you get in the right frame of mind, like on on game day and in 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 the Stargate, is it the fact that you've checked everything off and everything's been marked and in your mind, okay, that puts me in the right mindset. Everything's been checked, dotted all the I's, you know, mm. um, cross all the T's. Now it's just time to push out and be aggressive. Yeah, a lot of times it is kind of that. I mean, I think like my race day routine is pretty, pretty similar throughout. Like I... Um, you know, I wake up in the morning, I go and I like warm up. So that's like, uh, you know, a jog and like some movement stretches, things like that. And then, you know, I go to breakfast, I, you know, put my ski stuff on and then I get on the hill and then I do like, you know, we always start with inspection usually. And then, and then we'll do warm up, like a couple free ski warm up runs. Mm-hmm. And then, 
And then I usually go back into hospitality. I take all of my stuff off. Usually there's a big break in there too. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then I do another warm up, like another full kind of warm up for my body. And then, and like through that, I've been like visualizing and like, you know, picturing the course like we have the same courses every year i know you guys kind of have that too in moguls um but like you know in in the tech events and in super g you don't necessarily have the same course set but in downhill it's always the same so you've kind of like been visualizing it for the last like year since you went there you know you've been over it in your head and then so you know exactly where all the turns are you're ready for it you kind of like already have the course memorized and then you're just looking at like the changes and the different things and the snow conditions and stuff like that and then I think like yeah so for me it's always about like being able to like look back and be like well I've you know I've done everything that I can and so all I have to do is ski the way I know how to ski and not worry about the rest. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sometimes you get down to the bottom and, you know, I've been there when like the snowstorm comes in halfway and you're in 10th and you know that you just skied a run that would have been on the podium if you'd run number two instead of number 20, but you yep. can't do anything about that. So that's just like, you know, I always hang my hat on doing my best, not on doing the best. And so that's always what I come back to. Yeah, no, for sure, man. It's a good, that's a good attitude, uh, certainly to have for it. And I think that that plays a lot, uh, plays a big role into how some of those results come, right? I mean, you got to have the, the right attitude. Um, you know, attitude is everything for sure. And with you, how do you bounce back from, you know, some of those, some of those negatives is just, Hey, I did the you know, best that I can and go back same routine tomorrow. Or, you know, what, what is it that kind of helps you back bounce back from the, the negatives? Cause obviously it's always easier with, with the positives you're riding on the high and like, okay, same routine. Let's get this again tomorrow. But when things are not clicking, what, what is it for you that kind of helps you? Um, yeah, a lot of times, you know, one of the things that I do when like conditions are bad and this is very like personal to me I don't like is I tend to be like you know me I'm kind of like snarky and so I often like I'm very much a realist and so I believe in like stating things how they are I've been to races where I'm like this course is a shit show and it's going to suck <laughs> and running it is going to suck. And I am not, I am not a like rosy positive person necessarily. Like I try to like ground myself in reality very much. And that way that to me, like sometimes being like, like this set is messed up or like the snow on that one turn is sucks. It allows me to, take some pressure off of myself to be like perfect all the time because you can't control all those like side variables and so if they're not perfect like you might as well admit it to yourself like Mm -hmm. you know I remember being at Europa Cup and it had snowed like a foot and we were running these downhill races they'd moved up the finish the finish there was like a turn in the finish which was really sketchy um Kareen Suter who 
was young at the time also running the Europa cup and now she's like the best downhill and super g skier in the world she broke her leg there <laughs> um so um in the finish and i was like this course is like fucked <laughs> to beat that later but <laughs> this is so messed up and i was ta- telling my one of my teammates like this and she was like she was like i think like we're gonna ski it and it's gonna be great and i was like okay speak for yourself because <laughs> this is gonna be terrible yeah. and like we got to the bottom at the race and i did really well and she did not and she was super pissed and i was <laughs> like you just didn't like accept the reality of the situation like yeah knew that like skiing this course wasn't gonna feel good mm-hmm. it wasn't gonna be you know even fun like it was yeah. just like you just have to do as well as you can in whatever conditions you have and that's that's always been my attitude so sometimes I can be like negative and I can be like outright with that and some of my teammates I have to like kind of not say it to them because they're they're always like they're totally the opposite they have to be super positive Mm-hmm. but like like yeah i'll get to the bottom of the course and i'll talk to my coaches and i'll be like that was that was messed up like this is a shit that show <laughs> that storm came in and that was like totally screwed me mm-hmm. and we'll be like yeah and that's sometimes how like i have to deal with the desire just have to like vocalize it and be super real about it and not necessarily be positive all the time because i don't i'm just not that way right no i think that's super i mean it's interesting it's definitely insightful i mean i can definitely see it it, it, you know what it is it fits your personality though i mean that's just who you know you're blunt you're to the point you're honest you're open and that's uh you know i think it's a, a all great qualities and i think that that helps you succeed on the hill you know i mean i think having uh going through those courses or going through life with uh rose colored glasses uh and then you get hit in the face with a two by four like oh shit this is a different (laughs) this is a different beat like i think it's better to you know it's definitely an interesting uh perspective and i think a good way to think about uh how to game plan and just being open and honest and it also like puts a little um levity in the situation you know you can kind of laugh it off like man this course is a shit show like i'm still gonna go out and do the best i can but like just calling spade a spade here this is what we're dealing with like you know that flight was awful i did not sleep at all this pillow world championships sucks i would rather (laughs) sleep with no pillow and you know some of those things you kind of have to laugh at and give yourself a second to be like okay now moving on i got it out there and now we can move on and let's go compete yeah i find that like yeah kind of like vocalizing or like just like being honest about like those issues like lessens the pressure on myself because if I don't like it if I'm trying to pretend like things are great then that means that like I'm expected to do so much more which sometimes isn't reasonable to expect of yourself so no definitely I mean I think that that's that's a great that's a great attitude to have for sure and I think it'll it's already shown some results this far and I know you got to be uh, excited for the, for the year coming up. Um, yeah. One question I want to ask for, for uh, people kind of starting out and getting into Alpine and whether they're up there at Mount Hood summer ski camps in the summer and they're just kind of getting into it and getting their way, like what, what advice uh, would you kind of have for them as they're starting out, figuring out their way through the, the fears and doubts of, of kind of uh, getting into the racing world? 
Um, well, I think like for one, a lot of people in the youth levels of sport, this isn't necessarily like people just starting out, but people kind of, it, yeah, like getting, getting more into it. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, obviously now I have a technician who takes care of my skis. Um, but I did my skis for a good portion of my career, mm-hmm. did my own and I was very diligent about that and I made sure that like my equipment was always spot on I think with ski racing a lot of kids can have trouble because their edges aren't sharp enough every day or you know they have they don't have wax on their skis so then they're on the flats and they can't they're not getting the speed that they would in a race and then they get into a race Mm -hmm. and then they like you know file their edges and they're super aggressive and they're hooking all over the place And first of all, I think that that's dangerous because, um, you know, you're not used to something and then like having edges that are too sharp at certain times and not very sharp at other times is, is very dangerous. So I feel that like one of the big things that helped me through my career was being super diligent about my equipment and making sure that it was as well tuned as I could make it every day. And I spent a lot of time on that. Like I would come home from skiing up at Park City when I was in high school and we'd get back at six o'clock and, you know, I'd spend another hour doing my skis before I moved on to like eating and doing my homework and all that sort of stuff. But I think that that was super important so that every day when I got on my skis, I was getting on the same tune. So I think that that's a really important thing. I think that, um, you know, watching skiing is really important. I know a lot of kids who get pretty far without ever watching world cup skiing without watching like the best skiers. And I'm always a little bit baffled by that because I think you can learn a lot, um, from kind of what the best skiers do and what they're good at. Yeah. Um, and kind of learning learning technique and learning what looks good um but that at the same time like don't necessarily like look too much into that a lot of times like what I work on is very basic it's the same thing I was working on when I was 14 years old like Mm -hmm. stand over the outside ski you know have level shoulders Mm -hmm. still working on that still working on because um skiing is pretty basic i know a lot of coaches these days get really into kind of cutting edge skiing and um can sometimes lose track of lose sight of that um so that's um those are kind of the big things to me i think is like one having equipment um dialed and two like watching the sport being immersed in the sport and um working on those kind of basic technique things. Yeah. I mean, I think also one of the things that really kind of speaks to, at least from, from hearing you is just the, the passion about it, like to be able to go through and watch. And not only does it speak to your discipline of going home and doing that every single day, like, okay, I'll get schoolwork, I'll get to this, but I got to make sure everything's waxed. I got to make sure everything's prepped. And then it also kind of, uh, at least to me speaks to the passion of you just being totally immersed in it. Right. I mean, you have to love to watch it and love to, you know, have those different heroes or whoever it is. And as much as you can kind of 
get your hands on uh, the material or just be able to watch skiing. I mean, it's so much more accessible now compared to when I was growing up, like YouTube was kind of just starting to get going. And then it was like, wow, this is, this is really cool. And it was not as mainstream, obviously as Alpine and everything else. And we used to have this really cool uh, website called ski to bosses. And I think it was the, uh, the French um, uh, head coach would, would video all of the, uh, all of the runs and he would just put it up on this website and you'd have the podium, you know, one, two, three, and you'd be able to watch and every single run. And it was just, it was so cool to, to be able to check that out. And I think if you really want to be passionate or to, to have success in the sport, you have to immerse yourself in it. It's not like, it's like, Oh, kind of, it's like, you have to do it if you want to be good or, or really go as far as you can be. And that's simply for a love for it. I mean, you know, when did you fall in love with it? What was it for you that kind of dragged you in? Um, I mean, I have wanted basically like as long as I can remember, I've wanted to be a ski racer. Like I think when I was asked like in like kindergarten, it's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was like, I want to be a ski racer. My family was always really into ski racing and my dad, watched the alpine races pretty compulsively through the kind of early 2000s era there was like a period of time in kind of like the late like from like i don't know 2007 to 2010 where it was really hard to watch alpine mm-hmm. uh, or we at least couldn't so we didn't watch during that period but like through like 2006 like we had all that stuff so we were super passionate about it um i think the interesting thing that i have noticed like now being like so far into the sport is like yeah you really do have to like you have to dot every t and dot and cross every dot every i and cross Cross every every t (laughs) know what you meant (laughs) Uh, because like the amount of people who make it are very few and far between like Mm -hmm. you there really is a very small portion of people who who make it through and they are super dedicated and have kind of I always talk about habits like always having kind of the habit of a champion like always looking for that extra one percent like oh am I gonna am I gonna watch ski racing or am I gonna watch cartoons obviously I'm gonna watch ski racing am I gonna tune my skis or am I gonna like do my homework obviously i'm gonna tune my skis like am i gonna like you always choose skiing Mm -hmm. and and when you if you make that a habit from the minute you start it's easier than trying to like you know get to the point where you're 19 and you're not where you want to be and being like oh like i need to figure out a way to like make this work now because that's just really hard and you're playing catch up yeah and so few spots that you can't really play catch up. You have to be what you think is five steps ahead from mm-hmm. the beginning. Totally. Yeah, no, I think habit, habit of a champion is definitely a great, uh, great way to think about it. And I think it really does make that, that extra difference, you know, I mean, whether it's constantly going and, and I think because it translates, the more you're around it, it kind of builds that passion and you love to watch it and you love to be around it. And then, it also propels you for when the burnout is going to happen. Like eventually you're going to like, it goes, everyone, you know, when you're doing it from six, five, six years old up until you're going to go through burnouts, you're going to go through times like, man, I'm a hamster on the wheel right now. Things are not clicking. Things are not working. 
and that passion that you build up from when you're five, six years old, help you through those rough times. You're like, man, I just don't want to be on the hill today. Like this is a tough, you know, and, and kind of help you kind of grind through that. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. And I think also like, yeah, for, for like, for parents out there, I think like what you care about, like my parents were really into the sport and they got really into the sport. Like kids watch that too. And then like, you know, finally, like if you like really do have those kind of like habits of a champion, like not everybody is going to be the best. Unfortunately, like there's some luck involved in all of this and I happen to get lucky and I know people who didn't, but if you build up those habits, like those are totally transferable. Like, the ability to like always be looking for like, how can I do this better? How can I do that better? How can I improve? That is something that you can always take into another realm, like whether yeah, it's school or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think like doing sport and doing like skiing of any type is so valuable for kids. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I know you got to finish uh, packing up and, and, getting ready to uh, rock on the road there for uh, for copper but i really appreciate you uh taking the time for people uh, out there where can they go uh, follow along on on social media um i'm on instagram at breezy johnson ski and twitter at underscore breezy johnson unfortunately twitter won't let you make a handle that's as long as breezy johnson ski they're so rude, <laughs> rude. rude. uh and I think Facebook is also at Breezy Johnson Ski, but you can look up Breezy Johnson and I'm on there. So Perfect. Well, uh, yeah. thanks a lot for taking the time. I really appreciate it and looking forward to uh, watching you kick some ass this year. Yeah, thanks, Bobby. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening in. I really appreciate it. Please make sure to take the time to like, share, and subscribe our show. And also you can follow along on Instagram. Thanks.